0: Clearly Paul sees the behavior of the Galatians as a denial of the work of the Spirit. I am not sure, when you read the commentaries and some other uh, works on the subject, and you ask what is the significance of this verb here, epiteliste, I don't know that, that the meaning of that term, the significance of it has been satisfactorily appreciated. It is the first time in the writings of Paul that we see the explicit contrast between Sarx and Numa. In other words, even if Galatians is uh, put relatively late as I do as I put it, uh, even then it would be the first letter, the first time in his writings that have survived uh, where he explicitly contrasts Sarks and Numa. The earlier references to Sarks in chapters 1 and 2 had been more or less neutral at least uh, there wasn't a, a, a clear pejorative connotation to them maybe probably something about the uh, nuance of weakness uh, you know no flesh would be justified perhaps but that it's not a prominent idea in this passage it is clearly pejorative Burton is probably right in seeing a reference to circumcision and therefore to the material body, but uh, he fails to appreciate that given the the, the sheer contrast with Pneuma, Sark takes on something else and not just... Paul isn't simply saying, having begun the spirit, now are you going to complete it by cutting the flesh? Obviously, that's part of the of the background, and, and gives it a you know particular uh, emphasis. But uh, that's not all that Paul has in mind. Clearly, uh, Sarks is taking on the, the notion of self confidence as opposed to reliance on supernatural uh, means and power. And uh, you know, you could argue that now you have added a couple of terms. If you see. Chapter 2 is setting forth two systems or two approaches. Uh, One you have faith, the other one you have uh, works of the law, and one you have um, freedom and the other one you have slavery, and this one you have spirit over against flesh. So how does this affect the epitaleis that I was, that question that I was asking? Well, I don't know that we ought to press it, but... Uh, Keep in mind, or let me put it differently, there is some reason to believe, how's that for conviction, Uh, that the Judaizers did not necessarily deny the truth of the Galatians' justification as such. In other words, that the, the, the Judaizers were not necessarily questioning the veracity of their conversion. The, uh, because you know, when Paul says, having begun in the spirit, that seems to be a given. You know, we are accepting that. You are recognizing that. Um, now, do you proceed to do something else? The issue then would not be whether the Galatians are saved or not, from the Judaizers' point of view here, but rather whether they will bring their faith to fruition by joining the seed of Abraham, that is being circumcised, becoming true proselytes, becoming Jews, and now, sure, you did believe in Christ, you had to do that, that's fine, you did receive you know, some evidence of that, So you've been justified, okay. But now, that is not enough. You've got to bring things to fruition, to perfection, by joining the seed of Abraham. Paul therefore adds that in the case of Abraham himself, what really mattered was faith. You know, in in verse six he says, Kathos Abraham, just as Abraham believed God, which I think is a way of saying, although the meaning of cathos here is uh, controverted, uh, I think he's saying, your experience is precisely the same as Abraham's. So you don't have to worry that you do not belong to the seed of Abraham. That's going to be the thrust of, uh, I mean, the burden of the argument in the rest of, uh, of of the passage. So the point that I'm making here, by the way, should be sharply distinguished from a different view that says that, hey, Paul's concern here is not with with justification but with sanctification. And and people who argue that way, what they usually have in mind is, um, you know, Reformed theologians have a legalistic view of sanctification, and they need to to realize that. Um, uh, Paul is concerned about sanctification and uh, that, uh, you know, these are people like many other Christians and Reformed Christians especially, they will argue, oh yes, they believe uh, their view is that uh, you're saved by faith, but then for sanctification you have to paddle your own canoe, as uh, good old, uh, what was his name, Uh, the Victorious Life Movement back... uh, um, yeah, I can't believe I forgot. Boy, that uh, my, you uh, can see it's been a long time. Had this little pamphlet called "Victory in Christ," and he, he did a lot of work for the Sunday School Union. Uh, Trumbull, famous person. That's good. Anyway, he was very influential, and had lots of wonderful things to say. But but this is you know the real burden. Uh, you know, evangelicals. Uh, he didn't specifically focus on reform theology as such, but I, I think that's kind of what's involved. Um, talk a lot about faith for salvation, but then when it comes to the Christian life, uh, then they have to learn this. You see, you cannot bring it to fruition. You know, be sanctified. Um, and I'm, I was afraid that that some of the things I'm saying could be construed as though that's what I'm. Getting, that's what I'm saying now that's not what I'm saying but you know, unavoidably and undoubtedly there is a measure of truth to that as well whether whether that is what the Judaizers and, and the Galatians uh, that was the real problem it's another question but um, you see what um, maybe I should try to make a, um, a distinction at this point I think the tendency for many people when they look at this passage or Galatians specifically is to say that, here's, here's this first the way of looking at it, that uh, the Judaizers were directly questioning justification as such. You, know, you Galatians are not justified because you're not doing the works of the law. Um, So the Judaizers are attacking specifically the validity of the Galatians justification. Let me look at the third position that I was trying to distance myself from says, uh, no, the, the problem here is the Judaizers are not really concerned with justification as such, and and therefore, Paul also is not focusing so much in the beginning of their experience, but rather on the matter of, uh, you know, Paul is dealing with sanctification, and not with justification. And my view is, it's not exactly in the middle, because this is not like, like there are two extremes, and I'm, it, it's, something a little different from that. My point is that I don't think the Judaizers would necessarily question the validity of their salvation, but rather pressing them to bring that experience, true though it may have been and valid though it may have been, it is incomplete. Now you need to bring it to completion. Um, So, and you do that by joining the seed of Abraham, which you are not, you see. Now that is the basic problem. According to the Judaizers, these Galatian Gentiles are not the seed of Abraham and they how can they expect see, to be fully God's people unless they are the sons of Abraham? And so the, the whole argument, the whole debate focuses on that question maybe maybe something like that it's hard to be sure now let me make clarify something in case you're missing this from paul's perspective when the judaizers say this they are in effect undermining the doctrine of justification and, and making it nothing I think the tendency for many people when they look at this passage or Galatians specifically is to say that, here's, here's this first way of looking at it, that uh, the Judaizers were directly questioning justification as such. You, know, you Galatians are not justified because you're not doing the works of the law Um, So the Judaizers are attacking specifically the validity of the Galatians' justification. Let me look at the third position that I was trying to distance myself from says, uh, no, the, the problem here is the Judaizers are not really concerned with justification. As such, and and therefore, Paul also is not focusing so much in the beginning of their experience, but rather on the matter of the uh, Paul is dealing with sanctification and not with justification. And my view is it's not exactly in the middle because this is not like like there are two extremes, and I'm it it's something a little different from that. My point is that I don't think the Judaizers would necessarily question the validity of their salvation, but rather pressing them to bring that experience, true though it may have been, and valid though it may have been, it is incomplete. Now you need to bring it to completion. Um, So can you do that by Joining the seed of Abraham, which you are not, you see. And that is the basic problem. According to the Judaizers, these Galatian Gentiles are not the seed of Abraham. And they how can they expect, you see, to be fully God's people unless they are the sons of Abraham? And so the the whole argument, the whole debate focuses on that question maybe maybe something like that it's hard to be sure now let me make clarify something in case you're missing this from Paul's perspective when the Judaizers say this they are in effect undermining the doctrine of justification and, and making it nothing All right, the uh, basic arguments that Paul sets forth begin here in chapter 3, verse 7, and go on through chapter 4, verse 7. And then the the first thing here is the, uh, the Abrahamic promise in verses 7 through 14. We have identified the basic question, the crucial question, namely, who are the true sons of Abraham? And Paul's answer is that sonship... In this sense, it is received by faith, not by law. In verses 7 through 9, first of all, and we can do this one quickly, Paul states that answer in positive terms. Uh, you have this quotation from Genesis 15, verse 6. Uh, he, Abraham believed and it was counted to him as righteousness. And that leads to um, uh, a very important declaration. He knows are. Therefore, you know. What do you know? You know that uh, clearly the, the word order and the whole syntax uh, puts the emphasis there. The ones who are by faith, these are the true sons of Abraham, if I'm adding the word true in uh, you know, consistency with Luther's own uh, way of translating the Bible, being uh, you know, saved by faith and uh, not by works, anyway, by faith alone. You know, he adds the alone because that's that's the point of the uh, context. So the true sons of Abraham, through Lutheran fashion. That declaration has to be understood as a rebuttal of the Judaizers' claim that the Galatians must be circumcised if they want to participate in Abraham's blessings. Oh no, says Paul. Uh, And and the thought is repeated, really, in verse 9 with a minor change. It's, uh, you know, and therefore those who are of faith, are the ones who are blessed uh, with uh, believing leading or faithful Abraham. Now in between those two statements, which is really one thought repeated, in between those two, you have this verse 8, which uh, at first sight does not seem to support the point. Because you have a quotation there from Genesis, um, well, there Genesis 12.3 but there are various passages in Genesis that are in the background. The scripture, seeing ahead of time that the, that the Gentiles uh, would be made righteous by faith, the scripture preached the gospel ahead of time to Abraham. Namely, in you all the nations will be blessed. Now, I'm saying that at first sight it's not clear how that quotation supports the thesis that Paul is formulating here? Well, uh, the answer is that verse 8 cannot be taken by itself. In other words, it's not just that bare bone statement that uh, proves the point. The faith aspect, first of all, has already been established with verse 6. See, faith does not show up in the quotation at verse 8. But it's already been established as part of what the whole relationship between God and Abraham is. And then that will be developed further in verses 10 to 14. So what verse 8 does is to establish the universal purposes of God. Or to put it differently, let, let me try to express it this way. The blessing, there, verse 8, in quoting in Genesis 12 and 18 and so on, that blessing comes to Gentiles who are not pictured as having to become Jews. See my point? When God gives his promise to Abraham in Genesis 12, he does not say the nations... Um, will become Jews and thereby you know whatever where you would have had to phrase that uh, and there, therefore they will be blessed. Now the Gentiles are indeed pictured as receiving the Abrahamic blessing and nothing is said about their having to become Jews. By implication therefore the Gentiles must receive justification or the blessing as Abraham received it. Namely, by faith. And keep in mind that in chapter 12, Abraham has not yet been given the sign of circumcision. So that's the positive argumentation. By the way, I'm I'm also teaching you something about the way that I think Paul is using the Old Testament. The way that I just handled this, uh, you know, you could say, well, wait a minute. In, in verse 7 and verse 9, you have this affirmation that, that the true sons of Abraham are those who believe. And the proof seems to be this statement of, of Genesis 12 that says nothing about faith. And I'm saying to you, that's not the way Paul is working. He is assuming that you're relating things the way that he's relating them. He's already established that Abraham received the blessing through faith. Genesis 15, 6. And he's going to develop that idea further in just a minute. And therefore when Paul quotes a passage from the Old Testament, you want to be careful not to assume that that the whole point somehow comes out of the actual words being quoted. Uh, Paul expects you to be a little bit more, you know, i trying to think of a non-inflammatory word here. Uh, he expects you to... Uh, Read the whole Bible. So you have that positive statement. Now, there's a negative... There's an argumentation that takes a negative form. And the negative form of the argument is that the law does not justify in, in effective curses. And clearly, Paul is viewing this kind of argumentation as supporting it's contrary namely therefore if not by law it must be by faith now you look at the structure of the argument uh, and i have given you something like a little chart there in the uh, lecture outline in verse 10 you have a statement for as many as are the works of the law are under a curse that receives a proof from Deuteronomy 27-26. Then the second statement is in verses 11 and 12 by the law no one is justified before God and the proof is a double quotation namely combining Habakkuk 2 with Leviticus 18. Then the third statement is verses 13-14 through 14, that Christ redeemed us uh, from the curse of the law by becoming a curse. And the proof of that one is uh, Deuteronomy 21:23. So you have a threefold statement, each of them are supported by scripture. Uh, the first and the third supported by uh, quotations from Deuteronomy. The second supported by a double quotation, a linking of Habakkuk 2 with uh, Leviticus 18. So let's look at these. First of all, the use of Deuteronomy 27, verse 26. Uh, in uh, in Galatians 3.10 a big problem here and it is becoming a bigger and bigger question seems has to do with whether or not there is an ellipsis in the argument <coughs> traditionally uh, sometimes even without being terribly conscious about it, people have assumed that Paul is assuming something. Namely, that all people are sinners. Because you see what he does there in verse 10. As many as are the works of the law are under a curse because it is written, cursed is everyone who does not continue in all the things that were written in the book of the law to do them. Uh look. All right. Um uh, let me use the Greek here because uh Hoy ex ergon ergon these people who are characterized by the works of the flesh or are of the works of the flesh or however you may want to express that idea, are under curse. Proof. Um, Cursed is everyone who disobeys, all right? Who does not remain in the things of of the law to, to do them. Now, uh, see, those two statements by themselves, you could say that's a a defective syllogism or something. And, And what's missing is, most people have said in the past, well, of course not. Everyone disobeys. So then you have this premise, curses everyone who disobeys. Second premise everyone disobeys, therefore, uh, these people are under a curse. Now, two problems. Here, he doesn't say everyone is under a curse, but those who are of the works of the law. So, in addition to to this ellipsis of everyone disobeys, um, There is another assumption here in, at least in the way that this has been read normally, namely, that this applies only to those who submit themselves to the law. So now you have to work that into this whole thing. For those who are under the law, you see, who are submitting themselves to the law, uh, cursed is everyone, maybe we could put it here, under law. Everyone who is under the law submitted to it, submissive to it, and who disobeys it is under a curse. People who are outside of the law, that's another question. Now, everyone disobeys, therefore, those who are under the law are cursed. Now, um, Daniel Fuller along with a number of other scholars who have come at it from different uh, perspectives, have um, strongly objected to this traditional interpretation of the argument. One of the objections takes this form, that in Judaism, people were never expected to be perfect anyway and that the traditional interpretation distorts Judaism by suggesting that, according to Judaism, people have to be perfect, when that's not the case, that Judaism allowed for sins in the sense that it had a way of dealing with them through sacrifices and so on. My response to that is, so what? that's part of what Paul is very upset with Judaism about—that they don't require perfection. See, that's that's typical Phariseeism, and I'm and I'm not necessarily using the word Phariseeism in a negative sense. I'm, what distinguished the Pharisees was precisely their very carefully worked-out system whereby people could break the law and persuade themselves that they weren't breaking the law. Um, so you have various legal kinds of fictions that allow you to, you know, Pharisees, what, what really distinguished them was a, a sensitivity to human limitations. And they weren't about to demand of people more than they were able to give. And so you would classify sins and you would uh uh, deal with behavior in a particular way, which would allow them. Well, what it really amounts to, and, and uh, you know, some of you have heard this in, in my NTI class or whatever. It, it, it ends up being a lowering of the standard. And when you get to chapter five, uh, verse um, three, I um, I say to you that. Uh, if you're circumcised Christ is not uh, is of no benefit to you. and uh, but verse three specifically because I witness to, again to every man who is circumcised that he is a debtor to do the whole law. See that's precisely the point that these Judaizers and, and, and the Galatians who have been influenced by them don't appreciate, that the law demands perfect obedience. So it is totally irrelevant in my way of thinking to argue, well, Judaism didn't expect total obedience. That's right, and that was their problem. Uh, So why think that Paul couldn't say, couldn't assume this uh, on the basis of what Judaism believed or didn't believe? Now, Daniel Fuller's interpretation, then he goes back to Deuteronomy 27 and goes through the context and so on. Somehow or other in the context, he finds that bribery is one of the things that God commands in the general context. And so he says, that's really what Paul is concerned about, that legalism is like trying to bribe God. And I read that and I shake my head and says, now wait a second, I thought Daniel Fuller objected reading you know an ellipsis a a premise that is not formulated and without apparently being aware of it he now comes up with an interpretation that requires us to put a premise here uh, legalism is bribery against God now the difference between the traditional interpretation and Fuller's interpretation is that this assumption is one that's you know, clear from from Paul's writings. I mean, he says very clearly in Romans 3 that no one, you know, does what pleasing to God and so on. And I have yet to find a passage in Paul where he talks about bribery against God and how legalism is a bribery. uh, So I I think that's uh, kind of curious, to put it mildly. Um, There have been other attempts to this place, the traditional interpretation, and in fact, it has become almost a commonplace nowadays to say, well, the traditional interpretation reads a premise here, and and uh, there is no reason to read that uh, that premise. And uh, I, I am quite unconvinced that this is such an awful thing to do uh, when it, it does appear to make all the sense in the world. Now, there is this legitimate concern that. The conclusion to, to this reformulated argument, if you will, is not that everyone is under a curse, but only hoi namo are under a curse. And that means, we need to think about that as we, as we go through the passage a little bit more. You see, I think in traditional Protestant theology, we would expand the notion of curse and say, okay, everybody's under the curse of the law, but because whether they are aware of the law or not, yet... The law is God's standard by which people are judged, and if they break the law, they are under a curse anyway. But uh, I think it's a legitimate question to say, yeah, but is that the way Paul is thinking in, in such general terms, or, he, or is he still thinking primarily within the context of those who have come under the, uh, uh, the, the rule of, of the law, yeah? The confession does not explicitly there identify law with Torah. I mean, with the old, with the mosaic economy, I don't remember that it does. No, I'm, I'm, I'm yeah. Yeah. I guess the question is whether, even in 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 general uh, Protestant theology, people have necessarily read that statement in in Romans two as a reference to Torah. I think. Yeah. I don't think they necessarily have. Again, I my recollection is that I did say a little bit about. The, the structure of the way in which these citations are put together where um, the uh, Old Testament passage is actually quoted then, um, or rather where, where you have a, um, a thesis and then for each thesis you have a proof which is the quotation from the Old Testament and in the case of the second thesis if you will um, you have two distinct verses, uh, Habakkuk 2.4 and Leviticus 18.5. And um, I don't know whether I said this um, last time, but uh, part of what I I am trying to get across here is that the proof for that statement that by the law uh, no one is justified before God is not Habakkuk 2 in isolation nor Leviticus 18 in isolation but it is the the combination of those two quotes that Paul offers as some kind of proof for the thesis. But now let's talk about each of these, so we're going out to um, parenthesis B, the use of Deuteronomy 27, verse 26. And uh, I am taking the traditional view, that uh, there is an assumed premise, and the assumed premise is that all are disobedient, and I included that in the uh, outline of the structure, in the, in the outline itself. You have the uh, statement from Deuteronomy 27, 26, all who disobey are cursed. That's basically what the statement says. And that is supposed to be a proof of the thesis that those who are of the of the works of the law are under a curse and the only way that that seems to work logically is if you assumed a very reasonable premise that all are disobedient therefore all are under a curse now <clears throat> that traditional view which um, in fact I, when i was down last week at uh... Bees divinity school i was talking to frank thielman who published his book on the Law very recently and I was able also to read it while I was on the airplane to make sure that I had read it before I saw him and talked to him. But it's really quite, a, uh, quite an impressive piece of work. But I was talking with him and he showed me uh, he had been reading uh, Justin Martyr and he has a, a section in which uh, Justin Martyr appeals to this passage or refers to it and uh, in a very explicit way. Um, points out that, yeah, this makes sense because all are disobedient. And uh, I mean, as far back as the second century, for sure, people were understanding the argument that way. And um, they did for 19 centuries. Basically, I mean, I haven't uh, looked at every possible writer, but um, it's been only in the past few couple of decades, basically, that uh, scholars have been raising questions about this usual view of, of looking at um, at the argument. Daniel Fuller wrote an article in the Westminster Journal. Uh, this is in volume 38 um, for 1975 and 76 in which building on some comments by Ragnar Bring, Bring a Scandinavian scholar who had um, written some things on Galatians. On the basis of some of the things that um, Brink had said, Fuller argues that this traditional interpretation isn't going to work because you have to assume a whole proposition that all are disobedient. And so, (coughs) he says, well, let's go back to Deuteronomy 27, and uh, see what the context is like. And then he goes uh, to the next chapters. I recall. And uh, somehow or other, he comes up with the view that on the basis of the lists of curses, uh, one of the curses has to do, now this is in his terminology, I don't think you have that in the text quite this way, is that of bribery. And uh, if bribery is one of the things cursed, then Uh, he deduces that what Paul is doing here is appealing to Deuteronomy 27 and saying you see one of the curses has to do specifically with bribing and because these Judaizers Judaizers, these legalists uh, are in effect trying to present their own Uh, works as the basis for their salvation they are really trying to bribe God and so bribery which is an explicit uh, curse in uh, Deuteronomy 28 or wherever that's really the specific sin in view legalism bribes God is a heinous crime deserving condemnation and so he departs from that uh, from the traditional interpretation and, and goes in this other direction. But, of course, it doesn't take more than three or four seconds, I don't think, to uh, realize that um, this interpretation has to add a proposition just as much as the uh, traditional one. Uh, the only real difference is that in the traditional viewpoint you're adding a proposition that is a fairly obvious one and Paul is very explicit about his teaching that no one does what is right and it is a a clearly recognized biblical foundational biblical thesis. uh, Whereas this other view has to come up with a a proposition that, to put it mildly, is rather uh, innovative I mean, uh, this notion that legalism is bribing God, I mean, you could argue that, in effect, Fuller's position requires two propositions. One is, aha, bribing God is something that is cursed by the law, and uh, legalism involves uh, bribing God. But that, I mean, I, I don't know of any passage in the Bible that makes that point Explicit or, or absolutely clear. I mean, I can see myself saying, "Well, yeah, there is a sense in which that is true," but I, I I don't see that as a as a clear biblical way of putting it. That you're guilty of bribery when you try when when you're um, uh, when you fall into legalism. So then the question is not whether we shall add a proposition, but which proposition we shall add. And I think the uh, the notion that um, all have sinned is not only a Pauline concept but it is one that can be supported contextually. In Galatians 5.3 Paul makes that comment that um, don't you know all of you who are being circumcised that um, you really are a debtor to the whole law. And I think it is I don't think anyone would disagree with uh, recognizing that by saying that Paul, in effect, is suggesting that um, if you miss any of the commandments, you're guilty. I mean, it, it surely seems to be the same principle that James uh, evokes in in, um, in his epistle. Uh, if I've done everything but missing one, you know, you've broken the law. And... Um, Part of the argument that Fuller himself brings up, and and you find this also mentioned by other people coming at this whole problem from different perspectives, is that uh, in Judaism, you know, there wasn't such idea that you had to keep every last thing. And the argument is that it wouldn't, you know, Paul wouldn't make that statement because it would go completely against what, what the people would have understood. And and my reaction to that is precisely, you know, that's exactly part of what's going on here. That if you look at the the, um, the rabbinic understanding and the use of scripture, there was a tendency to interpret the laws of the Old Testament in a way that made it possible for, for people to think that they were really, you know, fulfilling what the law was saying, and and therefore there was a diminished sense of sin. And a part of what Jesus had to do is to raise, you know, their sensitivity to the uh, reality of sin and and the implications that has. And uh, I think Paul, in effect, is doing the same thing here as well. Now there are a number of other scholars who have also uh, criticized uh, the traditional view of verse 10 from uh, different angles. A couple of years ago, we had uh, another article in the journal by a fellow named Braswell. And um, as I recall, his point was that in verse 10, Paul doesn't say that everyone is under a curse, but specifically, hosoi ex nomu," And um, hosoi exergonomu must be referenced specifically to Israelites because they're the ones that are subordinate to the law. And therefore, here already Paul is making a distinction between Jews and Gentiles. Now, uh, Braswell is sort of onto something that maybe we need to give a little bit more attention to, and that is the precise focus of the thesis that Paul states there in verse 10, "Ex ergo nomo. I think it is true in a sense that um, that passage is not does not universalize the principle of of the curse, but it focuses specifically on those who depend on the works of the law. Now how that is supposed to be brought into the whole argumentation, you know, we may have different ways of, of looking at it. But I think I think you're able to recognize the specific focus of the way in which Paul phrases this idea and um and still uh also recognize that the universality of sin is what makes the whole development of the argument meaningful now in traditional categories again and 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 i acknowledge that uh, this is not quite the way that paul puts it and we may be looking at this with um, reformation glasses or whatever but uh, I am not persuaded at all that this uh, does not do justice to the text. That yes, Paul focuses on hoi nomu, okay. These people are under a curse because the Bible says that cursed is anyone who does not fulfill the law. And of course we know that no one fulfills the law. Uh, in other words, verse 10 is not a universal statement. It focuses on a particular group of people. Uh, the difference is that those who are not ex ergonomu realize that they depend on God for grace and even though they too under under uh, um, under the um, uh, effects of sin they're not seeking to overcome that by means of fulfilling the works of the law. Uh, So I I don't think uh, and I just don 't really see that uh, the the narrowing of the uh, focus to those who are of the works of the law uh, by any means you know is a really significant argument against the traditional interpretation but there have been a number of um, attempts to deal with the argument um, which are alternatives to the traditional view, and uh, you you need to be aware of that. Now, the next um, passage that I want to deal with is Leviticus 18.5. And um, as you probably know, this one is the uh, real uh, controverted passage, particularly within the Reformed uh, context. Uh, some of the uh, debates in the past uh, fifteen, twenty 20 years really um, focus on, on this problem. How can Paul, both here and in Romans chapter 10, appeal to a verse which in context has a strongly positive note to it how can he appeal to that verse as evidence of legalism to use to use the the uh, standard term here the problem seems particularly serious as you recall in uh, Romans because there he juxtaposes Leviticus 18.5 the righteousness that is by the law says then he quotes Leviticus 18.5 he who does uh, these things will live by them but then he says but the righteousness that is by faith and then he quotes Deuteronomy And uh, here you apparently have a contradiction within the pages of the Torah itself. Well, <clears throat> we're probably not going to solve the uh, problem here today. Um, be aware that, um, to oversimplify things a bit, there are three possible ways of looking at this. The first approach is to acknowledge fully the positive element in Leviticus 18.5 in context. That is a statement given by God intended to encourage people. They are his redeemed people. He has given them laws and he says, obey me, you know, be holy as I am holy. And uh, the man who does these things will live by them. So life is promised in some sense uh, that uh, permanent uh, fellowship with God really is what we're talking about within the context of an obedient um, lifestyle, obedience to the covenant. And that therefore, uh, Paul who is not dumb and uh, who would have understood Leviticus 18.5 properly, Paul too personally understands Leviticus 18.5 in a positive way. And if you take that viewpoint, then the only way in which you can handle this passage in in, uh, Romans 10 is to say that Paul is not giving expression to his own understanding of Leviticus 18.5, but he's really quoting or alluding to um, the Judaizers' misunderstanding of Leviticus 18.5 specifically and of the law more generally. Now, Daniel Fuller, again would be the most uh, vocal exponent of of that position. Paul doesn't really believe that Leviticus 18.5 teaches legalism, but he's taking it as a statement of legalism, why? Because the Judaizers did. So the quotation is not so much a quotation of, of of Leviticus, but a quotation of the Judaizing theology of law. Okay, that's one position at one end of the spectrum. At the other end of the spectrum, you would take the, the view that when you read Romans 10 and you read Galatians 3, it seems obvious or it seems most natural that Paul is telling you what he himself thinks, and that therefore you have to go back to Leviticus 18.5 and understand. Leviticus 18.5, even in its own context back there, not in positive terms, but in some quote-unquote legalistic way.